This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Attention, BetMGM customers. Have a friend who loves sports as much as you do? Here's a chance for both of you to earn a $50 bonus when they sign up through BetMGM's Refer-A-Friend program. Just sign into your BetMGM account and click on the Refer-A-Friend program to send your friend a message inviting them to register a new account in the same state you use BetMGM in. Once your friend signs up and makes a deposit, they'll receive a $50 bonus. And once your friend places a bet with their bonus and the wager is settled, you'll receive a $50 bonus as well. Share the excitement and get a $50 bonus every time you refer a friend to BetMGM. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Ohio only. New and existing customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets. Bonus bets expire in 30 days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Hi folks, welcome to another episode of Film Study. This is Ken McCusick. we got an interesting semi-crossover episode here where we're going to talk a little football, but a lot more baseball uh, with a friend of ours from Baltimore Magazine, Ron Cassie. Ron, how are you doing? Oh, great. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. So uh, Ron's a senior editor at Baltimore Magazine, but he did something very interesting last year that, that I've been just enjoying seeing the tweets come by on my timeline every time. He, he reviewed the 1970 Orioles season day by day during the pandemic. And his, his Twitter handle is at 1970 Orioles, if you want to follow that and look back at some of the memories there. I, I bet people alive in that era and Ron and I, we, we had decided our production meeting are both OK to say this, right? Yeah. About 58 years old. <laughs> so. Um, uh, we're just at the cusp of that vintage where our, our sports memories begin there. So, uh, Ron, tell us a little bit about the, the origin of this pro- project. You know, it's pretty simple. It was April last year, COVID, and I was missing baseball. Um, it's, you know, like a lot of people, it's, it's what I turn on when I get home from work. And, um, you know, especially, um, you know, the, the Orioles have been a joy to listen to, even in the bad years with Jim Palmer and stuff like that and Gary Thorne in the past. So um, it's kind of just my reflex habit. I was missing baseball, uh, missing, like many people, probably a lot of things. And, um, I, I, you know, it you know, just hit me. It was the 50th anniversary of the Orioles, you know, epic 1970 season, just in the heart of this amazing three-year run of 100-plus wins. And um, as part of my job, I, I, I look into the Baltimore Sun uh, archives at the Pratt, through the Pratt Library a lot online, and um, and I, I realized I could go back and and kind of just like relive the season game by game, just like read the day by day accounts and and um, from the beat reporters, um, and so just started, yeah, started an account and just started tweeting out like it was all happening in real time, matching day for day, and um, 
you know, it was it was great. I mean, I, I think by the end of the season, we're up to around four thousand followers, which was you know really just kind of crazy to me. Um, and the, the engagement um, was and continues to be, you know, just just amazing. So that that's just how it got started. Just uh, yeah, I couldn't watch baseball, so I just decided to go back and you know relive okay. game by game. I picked yeah. a great. Picked a great season, certainly to uh, go over again. So uh, uh, you know, we're gonna. I think what we're gonna do is we're gonna try and talk through kind of what occurred during the season. But the big part of this is obviously what memories we have of just going to that ballpark and uh, uh, Memorial Stadium. Definitely a grade B or C facility by the time the the, the time was at, and we're being the generous Baltimore grade for that facility. But it was a wonderful place to grow up for me. You know, and I started going to every game in 1979. Continued that for 22. years years uh so when i was in the state anyway for for games and i it was it was the place i grew up yeah it's a wonderful neighborhood waverly um you know when when um you remember um you know just being able to walk to the ballpark um people protecting their parkings there's parking spots with the cones and stuff like that selling yes. on the street a little bit the chairs yes yeah the chairs like that was all um <laughs> you know and you know it's funny when um you know the rapper chuck d who has like you know i don't know how he has like a million followers um he he checked into the account one time and said man he grew up like in oakland he loved seeing the games that are on tv from uh from memorial stadium football and baseball um that um I'm sorry, I think it's from New York. I love seeing the games and, and the hedges and the row house mm-hmm. in the background. Just the unique, yeah. you know, hey, like here's, here's a ballpark right in the neighborhood. Um, mm-hmm. And it had that, had that feel. And, um, you know, when I would go, started going to the games, I would sometimes would be watching and having a beer with a friend. Um, and this is, you know, my early 20s. And if it was a tight ball game, if it was like a 2-1 or 3-2 game, and it's his third or fourth inning, weekday, we would, would just walk over there and get tickets from somebody leaving. They'd hand you the tickets, and, you'd, and they'd let you back in and give the usher five bucks, wipe off a seat for you. And you'd watch like six innings of, of great baseball for like five bucks and just had that, mm-hmm. that kind of, I mean, people, you know, on, on the Twitter account, um, at, 70 balls, at 70s Orioles, um, sometimes talk about that kind of, character being lost a little bit and then yards you know all of a sudden you just couldn't sneak in kind of anymore and flipping us your five bucks well. to get behind home plate <laughs> <laughs> yeah you lose some things you gain others the orioles were yeah, great yeah, the yeah. thing i remember both about the about cheap admission to those games were the junior orioles club which was 10 games for two dollars in the mid-70s and the, the maximum age i think was 16 on the club and so i was still getting it when i was about 20 i know that and, and the shame of going through was a lot less than the value of getting 10 games for two dollars i could just say that so standing up in a line with with you know generally shorter kids obviously uh it, it, it was just such a bargain i remember in the in 1973 when i would have been 10 it was something I said, I, I want to spend my own money on that. Whatever that means when you're 10 years old, by the way, my own money, you know. <laughs> but uh, it was it was too much of a value to pass up. And the other thing was student tickets. When I got a little older, that they were only 250, and and that would have been in the um, around 1980. Um, you know, for when, when it was not a Junior Orioles game. Yeah, well, it's fun. One one thing that um, I'm across doing the, the the game by game accounts is um, there, there was like BG and E night at the ballpark. And like Bethlehem Steel mm-hmm. night at the ballpark, and like um, Roll 
you know, like school patrol night, safety like patrol. Yeah. safety patrol, like all those things. And you know, people will you know chime in, remember like that's the night they went they went on those nights, and um, it's also kind of you know remarkable because of all the, the great memories of these teams. I mean, the, mm-hmm. so many unbelievable ball players on Orioles. Um, such a colorful team, a colorful manager. Um, but the attendance wasn't always wasn't through the roof, you know. Um, which is funny when you look back and think, oh man, all all those games you could have gone to, you know. But um, it was a little different era. The games were like eight o'clock. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe Chuck Thompson was incentive to stay home and listen on the radio. Anyhow. I don't <laughs> well, they had they had the um, uh, set a record of 1.2 million, I think 1.203 in 1966. Yeah, they didn't break that until 1979. They, they, they when they had 1.6 million roughly, and then 2 million, I think, in, in 1980. Uh, just remarkable that Baltimore, in the midst of this 18 consecutive winning seasons, I mean, how spoiled were we? And they really couldn't draw during that era. Yeah, I mean, I guess to be fair, they're probably more in the middle of the pack or, or something like that. But they certainly pale by today's comparison, right? Um, I think that right that 1966 number was a little above, right? That was considered, drawing a million, I think, was considered good. Yeah, that, that was pretty good then. It was. Yeah. It was how long it took them to break it that was yeah, exactly, yeah. being so successful. Yeah, I wondered... Um, not to get too far off track, but I don't know that I wonder about the, the culture of the time, you know, with what was going on in the country and the war and stuff, with Vietnam War and stuff. And sports had taken a little bit of a backseat at that point. That's, that's probably a valid point. I mean, baseball had a, a rejuvenation in the 1970s for a lot of reasons. First of all, I think the game was more exciting, uh, but attendance flew up all over the major leagues. And, and it, was, it was some of the smaller markets who drove a lot of that, including places like Kansas City. Uh, so it's, it's uh, yeah, the game definitely grew. I'm looking at attendance figures now for the 1970s. So in 1970, major league attendance was 28,747,000, across the league. So the average team was drawing just over a million. And in 1979, it was 43.5 million. So we had almost 2 million per team by, let's see, 26 teams at the end of the decade. So about a million and a half each. So even then, the Orioles were only just a little bit above average in terms of their attendance. Yeah, it, it, you know, it's crazy because you'll, you'll click on a, on a weeknight game and see the attendance at like 11,000 or something. You're yeah. like, wait a second, Jim, Dave McNally's pitching? Jim Palmer's yeah. like, Catfish Hunter they're going against? And, you know, or somebody, it's... Um, uh, yeah, but you know it was a different uh, different era for sure. And one thing I like is that Baltimore fans are like, you know, proud that like there was never any astroturf in Baltimore from Memorial Stadium to Camden Yard. Yeah, real to real. Yeah. Authentic. You hear a little bit about the Colts players in particular talking about playing on the dirt, and they said a huge home field advantage. You know, we could breathe in it; nobody else could. It was very dusty. Not unlike Shea Stadium, where you know near where you grew up is is you know you had a lot of uh, uh, Shea Stadium was known as the Dust Bowl in that era, right? Yeah, I think you needed a cannon arm to throw at Shea Stadium too, with the wind there. And then you had the noise of like the, the airplanes and everything. Yeah, it was a distinct uh, distinct place to play. Not <laughs> not not super fan friendly either. Um, yeah, but. Um, yeah, I, I love Memorial Stadium. I love the grass. I mean, um, you, know, you compare it to the 
right? Because Cincinnati Stadium, right? That mm-hmm. our Orioles end up meeting at the end of the year. Like they're playing. That's the first World Series on AstroTurf, right? And that's yep. Riverfronts built that year, and um, you know that whole year of Veterans Stadium and Three Rivers and stuff, and um, you know just. Um, you know, it was it was nice. It's, I, I like baseball on grass, like most like most people do. You know, I I, mm-hmm. I was an old left fielder. You know, and I like being out there on the grass. Um, I, I I don't remember having bad seats at, at Memorial Stadium. Maybe I'm lucky, but I mean, I I remember an opening day up behind home plate in the upper deck. But you know, not a yeah. bad view from up there. And you know, sitting behind the uh, first base dugout side quite a bit. Cause I didn't know one. Of the, I got to know one of the ushers there. And um, and with the Dundalk crowd, with uh, coolers of beer in right field, you know, is where my uh, girlfriend and then wife used to go sit. Having and you know, that's not bad. Just sitting behind the right field fence, looking on home plate. I mean, you're you're close to the field. Yeah, I I, I think we're lucky. I love those upper deck seats. I, I grew up in upper reserved uh, for for most of my life early on. That's where the the Junior Orioles tickets you could get a one for one trade on on those seats, um, it, and we had the same deal. Uh, there's an usher out there. I want to I want to give a shout out to because he might still be in the Baltimore area. But Len Horseman, if you're still if or somebody on on here knows who Len Horseman is, um, he he let us sit in some great seats in Section Nine for years. I've always wanted to reconnect with him. If you're out there, I'd love to have you on the show and, and, and talk to you here about your memories of Baltimore, too. But we had that same sort of arrangement, you know, a very friendly usher who said, yeah, why don't you guys you kids sit over here kind of thing. And, and he was always very good to us. You know, um, I know I'll talk about 1970, but I, I did a story for the Baltimore magazine for the start of the baseball season. And because the Orioles haven't been so great, I thought it'd be fun to go back and look at the very first opening day for the Orioles in 54 and um, at Memorial Stadium and the enormous parade that was downtown and how excited people were to have the Orioles, to have Major League Baseball back, right? Because it had been, I mean, it's like ironic, right? The Orioles left and became the New York Highlanders and became the New York Yankees. Yep. After being really the first great dynasty in baseball, maybe, right? The Don McGraw, Wilbur Robinson Orioles, the Wee Willie Keeler Orioles. Um, mm-hmm. They came back and it was a huge parade. And it was funny going through some of the old stories and, and things like that. The, the um, Memorial Stadium's outfield dimensions were enormous like that first year. I think yes. the team leader hit like eight home runs or something. I think it was like, That's right. um, I don't know what it was, 375 down the lines, like like 480 to center or something. Even the power alleys were just way out there. Right. Uh, but the Orioles did Earl it like Stevens and yeah. somebody else had eight homers on that team. But, you know, they, they brought Vic Wartz uh, into the t- in, onto the team. And he was, a, a you know, an aging power hitter at the time. And he just said, I can't hit here. And, and he ended up being traded away because he hit the ball that Willie Mays caught that fall in the World Series. Right. Ironically, he crushes a mammoth shot in the World yeah. Series. And that, yeah. that gets tracked down. I think mm-hmm. I want to say he was from New York, Pennsylvania. Um, yeah, but the other this is this does relate to 1970 because this was kind of the theme of that piece for Baltimore mag, magazine. I think it's when the boys are back in back in town or something. Um, is that by the end of that 54 season, by that off season, all the pieces are in place, which is really interesting. Like the front office, right? Like the the scouting department. Um, Harry Dalton's hired. Even Brooks Robinson is signed that very first off season, and. Um, uh, the um, the White Sox manager comes over. Um, 
first manager, Gene, uh, now I'm forgetting his name, Orioles Way. Oh, oh, oh um, I'm sorry. Uh, I, I think you're talking about Al Lopez when you talk about the White Sox manager of that era, but that's not who you mean, uh, Richards. Yes, exactly, yeah, Paul Richards, right. So even he, it's funny, because he's the opening day manager in 54 that the Orioles beat on, ironically enough, two home runs. Um, he, the Orioles, he's the Orioles manager by the end of the season. They hire him away while the, while the White Sox are on, on pace for a 91 season. But yeah. the Orioles front office, um, you know, Hofberger's already in place, like a majority owner, right? The key ingredients are kind of there. They, they offer him the GM job and the manager's job, and he wants to test all of his kind of, you know, become Oriole way baseball. He wants to test his theories out, and they offer him both. And, and he's in place by the end of that 54 season. And of course, he hires like Earl Weaver and, and um, you know, Cal Rifkin, uh, the senior, come to work for him. And um, it is interesting because just, I think, after 54, just, right, but 1960, the Orioles are competitive the baby bird and even though that roster completely turns over um Mm -hmm. by 66 they win the world series really just for like an expansion club right and the the browns had been the worst team ever in baseball i mean for just 12 years later they they win the world series they're on their way to this great the greatest 25-year run probably in team sports history Mm -hmm. um and but those play those pieces are kind of all there by the end of the, the 54 offseason um, for, for, for the foundation of a great, great franchise. Yeah, they they uh, they did they did it they put it together very quickly. Uh, I give them a lot of credit. Twelve years is a is a is a is a good over under number for maybe how long it takes <laughs> to turn around a, a, a that's franchise fair. that's in that poor shape because they they really did have to you know rebuild a minor league system and do a lot of other yeah. Things. Let's go back to the 1970 Orioles. Yeah, so I think but we we, we kind of want to tell that story here, woven among all these memories we have, and then we're just obviously bursting at the seams to talk about that 1970 Orioles started out April 13 and six. Which were the games that really stood out to? you in that month in april yeah um you know i think they get a winning streak going um you know they start off great and and and, you know i think any baseball fan knows that when teams come out of the gate fast you know i I always think of the i guess the tigers back in 84 but when the teams come out fast it's often a very good sign for a club and (laughs) i remember jim palmer's telling me one time that um you know, they were determined after 69. I mean, they, they weren't in bad, they, the Mets were great. They had great pitching, um, but they were embarrassed and they wanted to come back. And that, you know, in, in 70, he said, Earl Weaver had the, the pedal to the metal from spring training, you know, and, and they, there was, nobody had to say a word. You know, they came out guns blazing. So it's like the first five games they win, I think, at the start of the season. Yep, five. Um, and then, you know, later in the season, they, later that month, right, they come back with one, two, three, four, like five more in a row. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think, you know, baseball is a funny thing, right? If you, if you win a series, you take two out of three, you take two out of three. You know, we're used to up and down, you know, uh, you know a 600 winning percentage is, is great in baseball. Um, and when teams are, are ripping off five-game winning streaks in the first month, I think, you know, you, you're real, is really um, – you know, sign the club special has has really has really ta- has really talented, and um, you know we forget too. I think how young like Jim Palmer was, still. Yeah, he's still twenty four at this point. 
Yeah, and he was, so he's off to a great start with like three wins in, in April. I, I'll, I'll tell you one game I want to point out because yes. it's a player who kind of had a transitional year in 1970. Paul Blair had had a huge year in 1969 and was thought to be one of the real rising stars of the American League. He had 26 homers, had a big year otherwise, but that was his biggest power year. In 1970, he didn't have a bad year. He had 18 homers, and on April 29th of that year, the, the Orioles won 18-2, to and they had three homers from Blair in that game. But Blair's season was, was really turned around by being hit in the face later mm. in the year and that really he all you could almost say he really never recovered from that as a hitter yeah that that's a great point um you know jim palmer among others um would say paul blair was on his way to a hall of fame career mm-hmm. and you know reading um the the real-time accounts of that you know and how close he came to like losing his eye it was it happened in california um he was in the hospital he was out of action for you know, at least I want to say two or three weeks completely out of out of action. So this was a major. This was not just a beaning, right? He's he's having he needs eye surgery. Um, it's not sure he's going to come back. He comes back in three weeks, and he comes back and, and has a solid year. Um, you know, my understanding of this a lot like you know Tony Canigliario, who also suffers a, a even worse beaning, mm-hmm. is that. The eye degenerates from the injury over time. What happens to Paul Blair and Tony Canigliario? It's because he comes back and you think, well, here a couple hits, home run. His, his eye. How can you play center field if your eyesight isn't there? It's the, it's that over time the ability to track the ball to pick up that spin at the plate is gone. And um, you know, I think he he admits to becoming a little gun shy at the plate later. Um, um, the start of the '71 season, he he tries switch hitting. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, spring training, and um, he, you know, it's funny because he he's not hitting bad for an average from the left side, but he doesn't have any pop, and um, he's taking some ribbing, I think, from his teammates, and it looks like from the, um, you know, from what I'm reading that you know, I'm recalling he's he's taking some ribbing in the media too about about just being a singles hitter from the left side, and he kind of abandons it, you know. Yeah, they have. I, I'm trying to look for the information there on his 1971 switch hitting to see what I could what I could find on it. But I, I, I just I have the memory of it. I know it didn't work out. It was a failed experiment, as a lot of these these things end up being. Uh, I think we see more people deciding they want to hit with one hand today than moving to switch hitting. I think that's very unusual today. But you have a lot more people who decide I just want to be a left-handed batter. I just I, I can't do it from the right side uh, in particular. Um, so, yeah. but let's wait. We can move on to May, and then we can keep the story going here. <laughs> this is about the story, so I don't want to give anything short shrift. If you had a story you want to tell here, well, I, you know, um, I there's a, mostly what I recall because you know I was live tweeting these a game at a time last year. And now I'm doing the '71 season, so. It's a little less that individual games stand out as some players and stuff like that that stand out, right? And, and sure. And and you know one of the things is um, Tom Phoebus, you know, who was a Baltimore kid who grew up going to um, and pitched no hitter for the Orioles, and uh, I want to say went to Mount St. Joe, and he's the fourth starter um, on the Orioles team, fourth and fifth, and um, you know. Ha- 
you know, look, by all indications, has great stuff, great breaking pitches. But boy, he drives Earl Weaver crazy because he has a tendency to walk people and get behind in counts. And it's like, if you look at his ERA and stuff, you're like, why isn't he, why isn't he getting more starts? He's, he's getting mixed in with, like, Jim Harden, you know? And it's just yeah. because he's driving Earl Weaver crazy, I think, because he falls behind in counts. His pitch count goes up. And um, he has this breaking stuff that's crazy. But, like, if you look at, like, his strikeouts, his per innings, his ERA, um, he gets, for some reason, Earl has tremendous patience with every starter, right? Don't leave Quayer out there. <laughs> These guys sometimes go 10 innings. I love when you see that come up, when, when Honor goes yeah. 10 innings against somebody. But Phoebus, man, he's out in the sixth. You know what I mean? Like, um, I mean, I, I think pitch count and effectiveness were, were, would be the things that he would point to that led to that. Yeah. Weaver was certainly ahead of his time in, in terms of that. But, yeah, Phoebus, very effective pitcher. Always low hits per inning. But the, yeah. the, uh, the walks got him in a lot of trouble. Yeah. Okay. I, and it, I, I have one soapbox I always have to get up on when we talk about these 1970 Orioles teams. Yeah. The, the, the 68 to 85 Orioles had 18 straight winning seasons. They had a lot of different ways they got there. They had great pitching teams. They had great hitting teams. They even had one great speed team in 1973. But the thing they had every single year, and this is primarily of the Weaver era, was they outwalked their opponents every single year of that 18-year streak and by an average of 109 per season. So that's two-thirds of a walk per game they were getting additionally. Weaver, not, that, that had more effect than just the value of that two-thirds of a walk. That's the Orioles dominating pitch count the way that the current Ravens dominate play count on the field. So it really had a huge impact on how good those teams were. You know, it's a, it's a fantastic analogy to the Ravens. I mean, I hadn't considered that. It's a fantastic analogy. And absolutely right. You look it was money ball before money ball, right? I mean, yeah. they they got on base, and, and Weaver preached that three run homer. And uh, by and the flip side of that is when you watch clips, you can watch YouTube, and I watched the 1970 World Series, um, and um, you know, there was no baseball, so Masson replayed some of it, and yep. and uh, MLB Network did too last year. And I'm looking at like. Um, you know, Palmer and, and, and Claire McNabb, but I remember Palmer in particular um, going against the big red machine. And he looks like a bulldog on the mound. I mean, we think of Jim Palmer as, you know, handsome and, mo- you know, this uh, underwear model and all this stuff and a sportscaster. And he's, get, he's peering in and he's going after Morgan, Rose, Perez, May. You know, he's leaning in, throwing strike. I mean, go, you know, no fear. I mean, just going after these guys. And, and it's just, there's a body language and, and not walking people, not putting unnecessary people on pace, getting ahead in the count. Um, that's just remarkable to see when you see people dance around the corners today and things like that. And then, you know, conversely, um, yeah, the Orioles, uh, you know, are leading in, in on-base percentage, you know. Um, and it's not, these aren't, neither one of these are, are mistakes, right? No. No, they, no. They, they certainly are. They had four guys with or a coincidental percentage. No. Yeah. <laughs> it was four guys with a 390 or higher on base percentage. Think about how unusual that would be today. Um, but but the other thing that I look at with this is I'm my enjoyment from baseball today 
is coming largely from looking at MILB on a night-by-night -night basis and looking at the Orioles' prospects. And mm. Elias yeah. is doing the right things. The low minors, those guys are all accumulating tons of walks, just tons of walks. And they're all in the top, all, all three of the bottom teams are in the top one or th one to three in terms of walks and on-base percentage. So I, I really like the, the, the look of that and how the, how the franchise seems to be being remolded in the way it used to be. And, and the way I think is really the right way to build a franchise for uh, for sustained dominance. Well, the, the other thing, and again, um, um, reading the the, the beat, Oriole Beat accounts, and, and I, I even go to the, I even go as I do this. I go to the out of town newspapers. I have a newspapers.com yeah. site to read what they're looking, what they're writing, and the sporting news. I, I joined um, last year when I started this account, the, um, the Society of American Baseball Research, which you, know, you can get the sporting news there. You know, people ask, like, "What have you learned?" And it's like. The Orioles didn't beat themselves either, right? Mm -hmm. Part of never beating yourself, having a winning team, is you take walk, right? You don't make critical errors. Um, you know how, you know, Earl knew how, had a whole roster that, that he knew how to use. Um, and you just don't see them losing games, uh, kicking games away, making errors. It's the other team that's making the mistakes and making the errors. That's, that's walking Orioles late in the games and stuff like that. And um, again, not you know, it's we've talked about the pitching and the hitting, but you know, you you the the Golden Gloves from Paul Blair, Brooks mm -hmm. Robinson, Mark Belanger, um, Davey Johnson, then then Bobby Gritch. Um, you know, and obviously Boog was not a great mover at first base, but you know, to a man, and, and you'll read comments from other sports writers too commenting on his ability to pick the ball out of the dirt and be a big target for, for guys and um, not make errors over there. Um, you have, uh, you know, they're just not ever beating themselves. It's, um, yeah, it's remarkable, it's, really. It's, some people, they were, the 1970 Orioles happened to win, I think it was 41 run games, which is really unusual for a great team, by the way, to have a great record in one run teams. Typically, the, the the single yeah they were forty and fifteen in one run games wow typically um, the 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 teams that are great beat the living crap out of their opponents regularly and the Orioles did that too now get me wrong they outscored their their opponents by two hundred eighteen runs for the year so they were doing it mostly with just drubbing them but but they they certainly had a closer's ability with those one run games and a lot of that was a, it was having a very great bullpen uh, you know good defense certainly didn't hurt but they had a, they certainly had a great bullpen that got them through a lot of that and those guys maybe get a little overlooked relative to the totally. uh, great starting pitching of the era. Yeah, I mean, um, Dick Hall, right? Like, um, mm -hmm. which is really, really a remarkable long um, career, right? Um, um, Pete Rickard, Eddie Watt, um, and you know, I think one thing that I, I like, and I, you know, we talk about baseball today, how it's different, is um, that that Earl Weaver didn't change horses if somebody was going well. I think you know, eventually, if you go through enough guys in the bullpen, you're going to find somebody who doesn't have their stuff. You know, mm -hmm. and obviously, you know, it's talked about a lot. Earl Weaver allowed the starters who who were his best pitchers work through a little bit of trouble, regain their footing. Everybody has to do at some point in the sixth or seventh inning, and you lose a little mileage off your fastball or a little spin rate off your curve, is, is find a way to win. 
And, you know, I remember Palmer telling me one time where Weaver came out to the mound, you know, in a tight ball game, no doubt, you know, ninth inning guy on base where he would have been pulled today. And Earl Weaver told him to turn around and look in the bullpen. Did you see anybody better out there than you? Finish the job. <laughs> so, you know, like, that's a great way to go with that. Yeah. Uh, and, um, it, 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 well, yeah, that was, you know, that, that was, again, about not beating yourself. You know, you're not... He didn't pull pitchers, who, his best pitchers, and go to somebody who you don't know what they're coming in from the bullpen with. You know, he trusted his team. He put them in positions to win. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, he, he had a great fielding. I mean, uh, what, did, what did Palmer McNally say that Earl Weaver didn't know anything about pitching except how to spot good pitchers? <laughs> yeah, that's all, huh? <laughs> well, you know, to just give you an idea, and what you're talking about, I think it could be summed up in, in saying that the Earl Weaver concentrated as many of his innings into a few pitchers as any manager ever. And yet he didn't destroy pitching staffs doing it the way Billy Martin did. Billy Martin went everywhere, destroyed every pitching yeah. staff by, by over pitching him. Well, the 1970 Orioles had three guys who pitched almost 300 innings. Palmer did pitch 305, Cuellar 297.2 and McNally 296. Imagine that today. You know, it, it, it can't happen. In complete games, you know how often those happen. Complete games, let me see if I've got it here. Yes, 17 for Palmer, 21 for Cuellar, and 16 for McNally. You know, just un unheard of. But, but, he, but he did, he really concentrated his innings into those guys. And the difference in, in how that played out for him and Martin is one of the starkest things about the 1970s and 80s baseball, uh, about how Weaver was able to maintain pitching staffs and their health uh, despite the overwork. The, the pitchers themselves give George Bamberger right, a lot of credit for that. Um, uh, actually throwing a lot and... Um, the other thing I think it gets lost, and I think it's held as a knock against Jim Palmer, is that he wasn't a big strikeout guy. How could that be, right? Here's a guy that throws like a rising fastball. Um, well, because they threw strikes, they went after people. They didn't go after strike. They didn't go after strikeouts. They threw strikes, um, which held. When you look, they're not walking people. Um, they're not. McNally and Quayle aren't striking out like Palmer a ton of people either. They're not unnecessarily driving up that pitch count, right? I mean, I don't pitch think... Pitch to contact. Pitch to contact, right. I mean, they're throwing... They're, like I said, Palmer, you look, they're leaning in. They're going after people. Hit the ball. Mm -hmm. I've got gold glovers up the middle behind me. Um, and I, so they're keeping the pitch count down. And I think, you know, in general, my sense, a little bit as a, as a former athlete, and I, I, you know, I've pitched too, just followed the game like everybody, is you don't tend to get hurt during the game, like in the middle of the game or the throw... You get hurt often early on because you're not warmed up properly, or you go to outrageously high pitch counts. You know, we see guys after they throw no hitters and stuff like that, where the pitch counts all of a sudden goes up, and the next day, the next outing, they're tired. Or you do see sometimes guys who have, back in the day, log enormous innings and then suffer the consequences. But, you know, one thing that's kind of been heartbreaking, slightly doing the 70s Oriole Twitter in 71, is how many young players pitchers wash out, Wally Bunkers. Um, mm -hmm. Wally Bunker was every bit as good as Jim Palmer when he was 19 years old, if not better. Sure. And, and, and Palmer lost two seasons. Like, they wash out early because of arm injuries that could have been repaired today. But they're not overuse. I mean, these are guys who are having arm injuries at 19, 20, and 21. Um, they're not, not from logging long injuries. They, they're getting hurt early, coming out early in a game and stuff like that. So... I think, like you, you were saying, it's, it's the use of these guys is smart and, and the mentality of 
throwing the strikes, pitching the contact, not walking people, um, using your fielders, and um, you know I, I think is why McNally, Cuellar, and Palmer do this actually year after year after year. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a sabermetric component about this I want to talk about, and that is that the Weaver was way ahead of his time in having the Earl Weaver statistics, and they were still called that around the press box for many years when they were handed out to the to the to the press in general. But they would have um, uh, you know the, the the individual at bats and the, and the batting statistics against each pitcher, which did, you know it was a decade before other managers were really doing this regularly. And there was a great article in the Sun at one point about how Weaver put his line up together uh, by looking at the Earl Weaver statistics and deciding who who against I think Peterson was pitching for the Yankees or something and he had to decide on on you know what the order was going to be and and he and he, you know, he gave the reasoning behind every spot in the batting order and one guy that was in there who gave Weaver a lot of trouble at the time was Dave Johnson obviously later a great manager himself but he was also a math student and I don't remember exactly what his degree was in but he went to Johns Hopkins while he was playing for the Orioles and he would go to Weaver with his theories and just really upset Weaver is my understanding at the time. And and I'm sure they were approaching the game from very similar angles. Weaver just didn't want to hear it from <laughs> from a ball player at the time. Yeah, I think Davy Johnson was actually using early computers in those days. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, you make a great point. I think um, this is, you know, probably was I, I had forgotten, but you know, Earl did juggle his lineup. For as much as that core lineup was intact, Mark Belanger, I think, always stands out to me the way he would move up in the order from second to eighth all the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, actually a couple seasons, in, in 1971 is the season where Belanger is a good year at the plate. Um, and obviously he's a great bunter as well. But Earl knew when to move him up in the lineup and when to move him down to eighth. You know, um, Paul Blair is another guy who goes up and down the lineup. And um, I, I don't know, I don't know too much direct. Uh, researches, but I'm sure Earl is looking at who they're playing, what they need, yes. their success against the starting pitchers. Um, Brooks goes up and down a little bit. I mean, Boog was pretty much, and Frank were locked in at three and four. Buford um, yeah. leading off. Um, but the other they guys had four moved around. outfielders they were choosing from. So they had they had Rettenmund in that era was was a guy they had to figure out how to get in the lineup. And with prior to the DH, of course, and and he was hitting up a storm in that era in '70 and '71. So they really had to figure out how to get him in. But, uh, but I, yeah, was, I think Rettenmund would have been a. You know, the, there's comments from uh, who was it? Um, Stan McDowell, the Indian, um, mm-hmm. in one story says that he can't believe Mer Rettenmund doesn't start. Like, how can that be? Like. Um, he'd be, a, he's a star. Um, and you know, he, listen, he was a great running back at Ball State, was drafted by the Dallas Cowboys. He, he was a, he could play center field. You know, that's what he, right? He relieved Paul Blair when Paul Blair went out with the eye and getting plucked. Mm-hmm. Um, tremendous athlete. Um, I think Merv would have been a star anywhere else. I think, and, and Jim Palmer has talked about this a little bit, when he came up, he hit the all fields. And he'd like, Great, you know, gap alley power, right? And, and had long ball power. Um, but he, un, under some pressure to, get, I think, get in the lineup, um, and under, you know, what Earl liked was home runs, he, he became more of a pull hitter and, and, and kind of lost what he was really great at, which was hitting, you know, like double extra um, base power to all fields. Um, but I think somewhere else he really would have been kind of a star. But where are you going to go with? Yeah. Buford's an all-star in 71. He's having a tremendous year. He's hitting like 322 yeah. at this point in the season, 11 home runs. Frank Robinson, you know, 
I think, what, fifth in home runs when he retires. Blair has played center field maybe as well as anybody ever. Yeah, they, they found a way to get 385 at bats for Redmond that year. I think next year, he, when he was third in batting in the American League, he might have had like almost 500. He walked a lot too, by the way. But then, then uh, after that, they really they, they had a lot of trouble getting him on the field very much at all. He ended up going to Cincinnati, and he's just way too good a hitter to have as few mm. total major league at bats as he did. He went to Cincinnati; he was basically a pinch hitter for them for years. Uh, it, it's a very odd career. It's it's one of these ones where he's just way too good a hitter for him. Him to, to him to not play more uh, over time. And, and, you know, you mentioned it. It wasn't his defense that was holding him back either. It was, it was great. He was in two lineups and just had great players at all these positions. Yeah, breaking into 1970 Orioles or the, the, the mid-70s Reds, that's a tough, uh, that's a big yeah. order. That's a tall order for anybody. Yeah. yeah um, sure enough. Okay. No, let's, uh, let's go on a little uh, bit in the season because yeah. I want to kind of progress this. Yeah, <laughs> so, sure. uh, uh, so we'll, we'll go into to, to May, and the Orioles really started to put it together in May of that year with a long winning streak. Uh, they finished the month with a 20-9 and nine record, so we're finally starting to see the kind of winning percentage we would for the whole year. Actually, I guess for the first two months, they were fine. Uh, anything else to stand out about either games or memories from May of that year? Well, you know, there's... There's times where Boog Powell is just capable of putting the team on his back. Um, you know, he, he could he he could have won the night. He, he, I think he had a better year in '69, um, but didn't win the MVP that year. He won it in '70, deserving, but not quite the same year. And um, you know, uh, it's we can forget. You know, Boog Powell was a three-sport star in high school for how big he is. He played basketball. He had a football scholarship to Ohio State. That may not be. Um, and some of those schools that may not be surprising, but um, he was just a masher, and, and and he could put the team on his back. And, and and Frank battled some injuries off and on in '70, as he did later in his career, not surprisingly. But uh, Boog was a, a rock all year long. Just um, I think it, you know, he he's starting to come into his own in May, and um, going to be among the league leaders the rest of the year in homers and RBIs. Uh, yeah, having a great great year. One of those great players who who stayed accessible to fans after he left. You know, Boog's Barbecue became an institution at Camden Yards, of course. Um, very beloved Oriole, I think, at that time. And it might have been in the late 60s. It might have been as he's still there in the early 70s. Um, he was living out in Parkville in a, you know, a very modest lifestyle like many of these Orioles lived um, in that era. I, I, I remember some of the very fun stories about him going to Japan and his wife basically, he and his wife were big drinkers and <laughs> and they, they got drunk on the plane over there and then Brooks Robinson remembers seeing Boog Powell wake up and then immediately hitting the stewardess button and asking for another drink. It's just the greatest story. Yeah. Um yeah, Boog, of course, became famous for having his, his uh, like barbecue and beer bashes after the Orioles game and keeping his neighbors up quite late at night, um, going to 1 or 2 o'clock and working. And, you know, the neighbors being like, hey, we, you know, opening the window, we got to go to work at 8 a.m. <laughs> you know, he's not going to the ballpark till much later, kind of thing, um, you know, which is kind of funny. I mean, you know, there's a, there's a game, um, I'm, just, I'm just looking at it here in May, um, when they beat the White Sox. Uh, you know, May 8th, this is just, you know, Boog goes three for three. Uh, his, his batting average is up to 272. Um, he hits his ninth home run already. Um, he's up to 25 RBIs. 
Um, you know, and you know, Jim Palmer, uh, you know, is four and two goes nine innings. Um, and I know um, at this time, you know, too, I think Dave McNally, my, my, I have friends who are in their 60s who are a little bit older, remember the Orioles even better than I do. McNally was their guy. You know, Palmer was seen as a little bit of a prima donna back in the day. And, um, and Boog always said, if he had one game to win, he wants Jimmy, called him, to have the ball. You know, it's funny to hear a 70-year-old man call another 70-year-old man Jimmy, but he wanted Jimmy to have the ball. And, um, you know, I, I just think, you know, Palmer misses all of 67 and 68, comes back and has a great year, in, you know, standing here in 69, but he's not a sure thing if he's going to recover as a young pitcher. And I think 70 is really, really puts his stamp. And despite all the stuff with Earl Weaver, Earl Weaver always thought Jim Palmer was destined for greatness. He thought Jim Palmer was going to win 30 games. He, he knew he was his best pitcher. You know, and he demanded that of him. He put that kind of pressure on Palmer. You know, um, and so you know, when you talk about games, you know, um, you know, I think as we all know these guys a little bit in Baltimore, Boog going three for three, hitting one out, Palmer going nine innings. It just doesn't get any more, you know, Baltimore baseball than that in 1970. And, and it's May, and the team is rolling. They're up by three and a half games. They never are out of first place the rest of the way, right? This is almost yep. wire to wire. It doesn't quite go wire to wire. I forget what day they take over first. But it's in April, and they never look back. Yeah, it's uh, it, it was early. Let's see. I believe from April 26th through the end of the season, they led the division. So yeah, and it, and that mounted. Um, that mounted. Uh, so it, <laughs> they they were as much as a game and a half out uh, uh, in April 24th. But uh, and part yeah, of the really fun never... part of this fun is remembering like how great some of those Detroit Tiger teams were mm -hmm. um, of the day, and um, the Yankees are. Are floundering a little bit at this point. Um, they're trying to make that transition from the Mickey Mantle to the Thurman Munson, Reggie Jackson, you know, era. There's a Bobby Mercer's in there for a while. They ha certainly have some great ball players. The Red Sox, I guess, kind of typical of the Red Sox is when they're, they're hitting the, the Jesus out of the ball, but their starting pitching lacks a little bit. Although they do have like Sonny Siebert and Ray Culp who have some good outings mm -hmm. and they have some great battles with with the Orioles. Um, I remember, you know, one of the things that comes up with the Twitter account too is some of the funny memories, like the Slurpee cups that had the images of the players, and uh, you know how great it was um, to get, you know, uh, some of your beloved players in, in the Slurpee cups. I don't know if you guys had those here, but um, yes, we we had. Get, uh, and um, yeah. I actually remember being excited about getting Sunny Sieber for some reason. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so it, I mean. The, this is the things have clicked in. It's, it's they've the Orioles have had, are coming off the '69 season, the, the the heartbreaking loss, right? Boog has talked about coming landing at Friendship Airport and 5,000 Oriole fans greeting them, and the players and the fans crying in tears together, um, reaching out through the fence there, and then the team really determined back in Miami in spring training, uh, or we were putting a lot of pressure to win immediately pedal to the metal, playing the starters. Um, and then it just takes them a month, and they're in first place and, and aren't looking back. And I see, you know, May, they just um, they just have a great month of May. And, and you know, they're, they're on, on their way. 
Yeah. So by the end of May, they, they led the division by seven and a half games. So uh, not necessarily a safe lead for any team, but you look at the Baltimore Orioles and the rest of the division had to understand that 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 was that was a fairly much an insurmountable lead. Uh, didn't have a great June. They were 14 and 13 in June. Uh, you know, it's an up and down month, frankly. Uh, is there anything that strikes out about that? There's one game that I want to talk about in 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 May. But if you have an error, sorry, if you want to hit on it first, you sorry, in June. But if you want to hit on it first, go ahead. Well, I, there's, um, you know, the other fun thing is seeing these, I think I've mentioned like these pitching matchups, like mm-hmm. that just, um, boy, to go back in time, um, you know, and see uh, a game at Memorial Stadium where you have Blue Moon Odom starting for the Oakland A's and Jim Palmer. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, so Palmer, I think it's like June 14th, goes 10 innings and, uh, <laughs> you know, allows eight hits. Strikes out nine, a high number, right? Um, mm-hmm. Walks three. Um, but, yeah, but needs to go 10 innings to get the W. I mean, this is That's, just... I kn- you know, unheard of he had, had to have a pitch count that was that was pretty high in that game. You would that, he did, yeah. But, I mean, he, you can't... For how jovial these guys are, when you're Brooks Robinson and Friendly Boog and Jim Palmer... Uh, man, they were they were competitors. Man, they were fierce. I mean, that when you like you mentioned their one run game that they win, you know they they gave no quarter and asked no quarter on the field. Um, Frank Robinson had come over famously um, in '66 and saw uh, a lot of the Orioles like yeah, but being friendly with players before the game and stuff like that, and, and he he didn't want any part of that, um, <laughs> you know. And he brought a and, there, and to a man they'll all say the seventy Orioles, you know, that 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 he he really brought a lot of competitive fire and taught them how to from being a good team to a great team and, and how to win and um you know, you you don't go ten innings and win games like this, um, unless you've really got some competitive fires burning pretty pretty deeply. So those 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 great matchups, Mudcat Mudcat Grant comes in for Oakland, gotta be one of the greatest nicknames in sports. Um mm-hmm. throws two scoreless innings and um yeah, so that's 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 one game that Palmer going ten innings. All right, well, I'll give you I'll give you my favorite okay. of the month, and that was on June twenty fifth. They played the Red Sox at Fenway. They were down seven to nothing in that game after five innings. They came back with five in the sixth, two in the ninth to tie it, and six in the fourteenth to win it, thirteen yeah. to eight. It's 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 one of the great comebacks in team history. For the for the longest time, it was in the Oriole Media Guide as the biggest comeback in team history. That it was they'd never come back otherwise from seven nothing down. Uh, ended up it's interesting in that game, shut out for five innings. He ended up with twenty one hits in that game. It's, it's shocking to me, but it, you know it is what it is. And I guess fourteen innings it, it certainly helped that. But uh, uh, that was that was the the big comeback of nineteen seventy. There's been others in Oriole history. One, in fact, where they came back from six nothing down in the ninth uh, to win a game in extra innings. But this was this was the biggest early biggest comeback of the uh, for the nineteen seventy Orioles. And uh, Mo Drabowski gets the win, which is uh, a legendary name in Oriole. Uh, Annals, right? Uh, the, yeah, so Drabowski, uh, yeah, so many stories around that guy, and I'm sure we could each share one, but, you know, calling the A's bullpen and telling them to get Lou Krause ready uh, you know, from the Orioles' dugout. <laughs> or he might have done it from the, I guess he must have done it from the Orioles' bullpen. But, uh, you know, they knew what the extensions were there, <laughs> and uh, they did that. So I, I think the, the, the visiting bullpen was number 76, and the Orioles, uh, Orioles' bullpen was number 75 in that era. Yeah, uh, right. A really colorful character. Kept people loose. Um, and he started 1970 um, in Kansas City. 
um, the Orioles had traded him. He, he won, you know, folks remember he won. The, he came in relief of McNally in Game One of the World '66 mm -hmm. World Series, and and had the greatest relief outing ever won. And and Palmer talks about that being in the dugout and watching Mo Drabowski come in and just mow everybody down for, you know, uh, eight subsequent innings. And uh, they they bring him back in '70. And um, I don't know that he has a great '70 year. I mean, he gets the win there, um, but he certainly keeps people loose and, and is fun. Um, yeah, one of the great characters in, in uh, or it's interesting too that Earl Weaver would have these guys around. Right. You know, that, that he has this, you know, reputation of flying off the handle being a yellow on the screen, but he could certainly tolerate characters, right? He had no problem. Um, he enjoyed them, right? Like, how to maybe counterintuitive what people may think of somebody as a disciplinarian, a, a yeller, a micromanager, or, or, yeah. um, his, his need for a left-hander was greater than his need to avoid that kind of personality, is all I could say. You know, yeah. Beat record on that team, but they didn't really have another. Uh, actually, I think Marcelino Lopez might have been a, might have been a left-handed pitcher. He was, yeah. Year. He did, yeah. He didn't pitch but, a lot. Yeah. Um, so they, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's, you know, there's, there's, there's even games, too, that, um, you know, the names, you know, people will remember, like seeing a young Burt Blylevin in 1970, um, 19. Yeah, I don't think he was very successful ever against the Orioles in those days. But, um, you know, or Wilbur Wood with the White Sox, you know, like transitioning from being a bullpen knuckleball to a starter. And I think he won 20 and lost 20 eventually. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it just, even the names resonate just a whole different era of, of baseball, which is, which is fun. And as and it's much fun as, as it is, Reliving all the Orioles history, it's also fun reliving this baseball history, you know, in general for the Twitter feed. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and uh, you know, it was, it was a great era of baseball, frankly. The, the 1970s, not only were the Orioles great, which certainly, you know, bolsters most of my memories about it being the golden age in, in some ways, but it was a game of conflicting styles. So it was a game where you could have a power team, you could have a speed team, you could have a ballpark that was really built for your team. And I think that, that a lot of teams did it differently, and they did it very well throughout the 1970s, and, and uh, it, it made it a great game. I find the game today just incredibly boring in terms of it being so funneled into home run, strikeout, walk uh, relative to what we had in the 1970s. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, completely. I, you, the thing that when I go to a ball game is most noticeable compared to lower level, and I, I can enjoy watching a high school, college game, or minor league game just as much, but you know, the fielding is so different at the major league level to me. That's always been the thing that just, just struck me, the ability to turn a double play, make sparkling plays at third. To, they, you, know, you know, sometimes it looks like, it, how do you hit a ball that lands safely on the grass somewhere, the way these guys, mm -hmm. but you miss, you miss that aspect of the game when it's just home run or strikeout. You know, it removes, removes some of that, um, and you know, I, I, you know, I love this year too. And it's 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 been great fun. It's part of the 1970 Orioles Twitter feed. Do even you know? There's people who follow from other uh, out of town, right? Like I, there's people who are Detroit fans that follow the account and, and will weigh in or either or, or they're Oakland fans. And you know, it's great fun to see. You know, the Oakland A's kind of knocked on the door, but they, you know, the California Angels are pretty good in those days. The Minnesota Twins have these unbelievable teams with with Carew and Olivia and Killebrew, um, and you know, you're kind of you know what happens, but it's still 
wait, when are the A's going to bust through finally? You, know, the, you can see the guys they have in their lineup and their pitching staff coming together, and, and they seem to be so close. Um, and But that's what it was in those days, right? It took teams years to kind of to gel and come together, and, and you know, it did ultimately right, change when, when the Dodgers or Yankees or Red Sox just you know, buy a pennant, you know, essentially well, just go out and buy everybody. Yeah, free agency came along. I mean, it's one of the great things about the the building the dynasty on the walk comment I made earlier is the Orioles' decisions of the early 1960s impacted their 1968 to 86 dominance um, in in a lot of ways with, with the walk. I mean, that's when they acquired players like Powell and and uh, Johnson and Blair and Belanger in the draft. I mean, they, they they got those guys then. I mean, Brooks was there a little bit before that. They did get Frank in a trade, but I mean, those, those guys were all acquired. Their, their, their legendary level of minor league stars they had with Baylor being a triple-A a MVP or player of the year, whatever the designation was, and Retton won one at one year, and who was the third guy who won it? Um, I think Gritch may have won it. No. Yeah, but but anyway, he was the same kind of player that that you know is, it fit the mold extremely well. But they made those decisions years in advance, and it really was the early '60s decisions impacted the late '70s uh, roster still. Yeah, they, the Orioles were um, one of the first, right? Was, I guess it was it was Harry Dalton, or I can't remember who his supervisor was at the early on. But they made they they, they made the decision as an organization to get. You know, two sets of eyeballs and everybody. Mm-hmm. And even if it was a Davy Johnson, who was kind of considered a can't miss a great project in, uh, prospect, I think it was in like Texas, um, they were going to get two sets of eyeballs. And they, Orioles started the, the numerical system yep. of, of uh, you know, somebody's hitting for power, hitting for average, arm, attitude, like all those things. And um, yeah, they, they fired, you know, unbelievable players. I, I you know, I think that. Oriole way and that patience. I mean, it's got to make you a better hitter. You have a better eye, um, you know, over the long term of your career. Good for the organization, right? Um, uh, so they were they were grading it early and they were getting it right on a bunch of players that that had a very long tail on that payoff. Yeah, yeah and you know, Palmer and other guys talk about the great minor league coaches they had through the year. You know. Um, was in the it was in the um, minors. I remember I talked to Andy Etchebarren one time, and he said, you know, when Palmer came up, I think he called him like an Aberdeen, Aberdeen, South Dakota, right? By the way, um, <laughs> that 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 Palmer couldn't, you know, was all would walk eleven guys in a game. You know what I mean? Like had no control, and he threw hard, like probably close to 100 miles an hour as a young guy. And they and the Tarvikin senior and the dial it back a little bit, you know, just a few miles an hour, start throwing strikes. You know, and Etcha Baron, you know, and, and, you know, said it changed everything all of a sudden, you know. Um, but it wasn't just going out like we see relievers or, or people do today, trying to hit 100 miles an hour. You know, Palmer reined it in a little bit and then had this, you know, one of the gr- greatest careers ever, you know, certainly greatest Orioles pitcher ever. Um, mm-hmm. co- that coaching, that, that developing players for long haul, you know, I think. Um, and, you know, guys came up too. Starters became starters. First, they came up in the bullpen, right? In those days. Mm-hmm. And then very they common. became very common. Then became, you know, that's how you broke in, right? You got to, you, there wasn't a, you weren't handed a, rota- or a spot in the rotation, right? One of the, one of the quotes from Earl Weaver's, one of Earl Weaver's books, and it's out of print now, but if you can get your hands on this, it's what you learn after you know it all that counts. Great book. And he says, the best place for a rookie is long relief. That's his first, <laughs> his first comment. 
<laughs> yeah, there, there is, I, you know, as part of doing this 19th century Orioles Twitter, I, I, I probably bought, you know, I bought tons of Orioles baseball cards. Mm -hmm. I bought the old yearbooks. Um, I, I bought a bunch of baseball books, um, uh, the Earl Weaver and Jim Palmer stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, there's, 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 you know, treasure trove of stuff in there. Um, that's, 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 you know, I think fun for any fan to read. In fact, you know, I, I, I've been considering putting together like essentially a book about the, or the narrative of the Orioles 70s season, you know, kind of a blow by blow account like the Twitter account was because there's nothing like seeing a season unfold game by game, the ups and downs and, and, you know, there's peaks and valleys, but, um, you know, weathering injuries, weathering slumps, um, you know, in the sense that, yeah, the Orioles are winning a lot of close games. They don't beat themselves. You know, it really comes through just reading the, the accounts of the games. And, um, you know, it's really, uh, yeah, it's really, it's really, it's really been a, a blast too, and it's got, it's got me more interested in the Orioles this year too. I mean, even though as bad they are, you know. Yeah, um, that'd be that'd be a great book, and particularly, you know, writing those books after the fact when there's the historical framework you can also draw on is always fun. You can reframe that season in a way, or you can maybe try and understand where these guys were in their careers on their eventual path to greatness. So, I think a lot of people would love to see that book, Ron. Yeah, I mean, there's interesting, you know, cultural things going on too, right? We know we know about the the '68 riots in Baltimore, and 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 you know the Orioles and Frank and Brooks being best friends and everything. I think are you know are you know, part of the healing from that. And, and there's the Vietnam War, and Al Bunbury in the minor leagues, and eventually has to go serve in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And he talked about that being transformational. But he's in the minor leagues at this point, um, like Bluefield, Virginia. There's a lot of stuff going on. There's um, on off the field, there's the tragedy of Blair getting hit. You know how, how you learn, especially you get to be our age. You know these guys are they're young guys pursuing their dreams, and you you learn how fragile they are, right? How fragile athletes are. Their arms are especially in those days, and you can only imagine what's going through their their mind when when um, um, you know not to get too serious for a moment. But you know there's a ball player, Mona's name mistakes me with the with the Cleveland Indians who commits. Tries to commit suicide later in 1970 when the Cleveland Indians are on the road. It's and not uh, Hort, or sorry, Hort, oh yeah, is it? it is. Yeah, you know, and he was a great young ball player, had, had a bunch of home runs. And that was a, that was a, you know for me going back through this, I'm like, well, I, I read that he hit like 20 some home runs the year before, and he, and uh, 20 again. I'm thinking, well, how do I not know this guy? How come I don't I know, remember why? his name? <laughs> yeah, because this is his last year. You know, he does he quits baseball. There's something else, too, because Horton refused to let Topps make baseball cards of him. So there's no baseball cards of him in that era. So even though he's hitting some home runs for the Indians and he's a you know, big-time big, hit, big -time hitter in the era, there's no baseball cards of him. So you know, as, as kids, we, you know, we don't have any memories to look back on of that. Yeah. Um, so, and, and you know, coming, you know, coming across names like, um, I said, like Wally Bunker, you know, who's on his way to superstardom with the injury and... Um, you know, and learning what these guys go on to do after the, with, the, with the rest of their lives, right? They're not just retiring on millions. They become, uh, you know, gym teachers and athletic directors and, and go on to regular jobs. And, and some guys become like Echebarren baseball lifers. And, um, uh, you know, Davey Johnson's decision eventually later in his career to go play in Japan, kind of, uh, you know, groundbreaking. Um, yeah, so there's a, there's a lot of stuff on the, on the periphery that's fun, too. The, you know, the, the fun stuff about... Uh, Earl growing his um, tomatoes <laughs> yep. out of the center field and 
Um, I'm going to forget her name. There's a 13-year-old girl who used to clean off the bases at the seventh inning. Linda uh, Weirheim, maybe? Or that some, is it. Some... You have a great memory, Ken. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. And, and there's a funny story about that. Her brothers were on the grounds crew. Mm -hmm. And uh, they say, well, our, you know, our little, our kid's sister's a big fan. Why don't we get her out here to do something? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, she had a little moment. Uh, you know, she'd sleep off the player's cleats, and, and sometimes the third base coach would give her a kiss or a hug. I mean, things you probably wouldn't see today. But, um, yes. you know, it was a very, like, like, you know, folksy part of the era with Earl with his tomatoes. With the, he was in competition with Earl's groundskeeper. And... Um, you know, Linda Warheim coming out to sweep off the bases and, you know, the ball players kind of having like off-season jobs or, you know, the, you know, the kids going to the same schools as everybody else, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. There is a lot of fun stuff on, on, on the periphery um, beyond just, you know, between the white lines that's happening. Yeah. So I, I just I, this brings up a memory for me that's sort of related is, is uh, the Baltimore Colts actually were out of their old practice facility and they were rebuilding a new one in the mid-70s in Owings Mills. And it, was, it wasn't the castle. It was a precursor. It was kind of a crappy facility, frankly. Um, but, but it was done in the Ursae era, of course, and that's the way things ended up. But, but for a year and a half, I believe, or at least a full year, they practiced at McDonough. And, and I was in the seventh grade at McDonough. It was great to, you know, had the Colts walking by after practice and, and they were available for autographs and whatnot. It, it was great for us. And yeah, then I talked to Stan White about it a couple of years ago. He said we had two shower heads at that freaking place. <laughs> you you practice and you went home in your car and you took a shower because there's nobody, you know, there's nothing for us to do there. So uh, it's oftentimes a very different perspective on the on the game there. Yeah, and I don't know if the players. There was a lot of um, they were fans of each other, right? The, the Colts and the mm -hmm. and the Orioles. You know, I remember Boog telling me he went to. Um, you know, the 69 Super Bowl, and uh, actually played in 70, right? But um, it was heartbroken when his buddies lost. And they were, because they, at the same stadium, right, Memorial Stadium, they they'd kind of have a little overlap and see each other, and, and they rooted for each other. And, um, um, you know, I don't know if that's, that, that's kind of the same thing. And they had, um, they did like the, um, the basketball teams, right? Um, mm -hmm. Where they played high the schools and stuff like that. Well, oh, the, well, the Baltimore Bulls, right, but the Orioles and Colts had the off-season basketball teams, which were kind of uh, oh, okay. like publicity, like marketing for the team a little bit, right? Yeah. Bill Belanger uh, was a great high school basketball player, um, recru heavily recruited, one of the Massachusetts like, best players in the state. Palmer had an offer to play at UCLA. Um, you know, they took their, I had a buddy who played with these guys in the off-season at the Towson YMCA. And, uh, like, man, it was all you could do to get up and down the floor with these these guys. Um, yeah, so some of that, like, just going to Towson Y, and there's half a dozen Orioles playing, you know. And they, they would obviously need a few ordinary souls to get to 10 in, inbounds and ball to them. <laughs> Probably. But, um, yeah, you missed that a little bit. That's, that's, that's fun about this uh, era, you know, as well. All right, so let's go, let's go back to the 1970 season. We'll kind yeah. of finish this up quick since we've been story-wise this whole time. So July, a good month for the Orioles. They go 17 and 11. Uh, anything you want to bring up about, about July and the race heating up? I mean, they obviously went from uh, kind of a nadir at the end of June of three-game lead, actually a two-game lead on June 29th, up to a six-and-a-half at the end of the month. Well, um, you know, probably they take um – 
you know, they, they, they're, the, the twins are, are, their, are a big rival at this point, right? And I think it's, it's inevitable, and you see them in the four-game series with the twins in July, and they split two and two. And um, uh, they beat the twins both times, right, 69 and 70, like 3 and 0. But they were, like, really close games. They didn't really, they didn't really pound the twins. And so I, you know, I remember people like in the last year, the Twitter, like going like, like, I know how this season ends, but like, I'm still worried. You know what I mean? Like, so when they split with the twins two and two uh, in late July, you're thinking like, oh man, you know, like it, this is, is going to be still a big hump to get over. You talk to Twins fans of that era, and I have uh, with one guy who had a ball boy job there. And basically, he told me, you know, those were the best years, 1979, 69 and 70. We played the Orioles even during the regular season. Actually, yeah. years the Orioles won the season series 7-5 to five against them. But then they, they, they beat them 3 nothing in the in the, in the the postseason both years. Um, the 69 series, very close in terms very of those close. first yeah, two right. games. That's I mean, right. Powell came back with the home yes. run. In, in 70, they beat them a little bit worse because yes. they, 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 they had a grand slam from Cuellar and they had they won a game what 11 and they won a, they won a game with Palmer 6 to 1 where it was never in doubt anyway whatever I, it, the point was that they beat him pretty pretty bad later in the postseason but the other thing about the Twins fans is that's all they had for a long period of time the Orioles had 18 straight winning seasons the Twins had two two times where they made the playoffs and you know then they went through a whole area where Roy Smalley is their best player yeah you, and it's it's true and um you know, one, you mentioned one game, and sometimes there is one game that stands out. In, in July, July 25th, when um, Dick Hall comes in and throws four innings in relief, um, you know, allows one run, he wins his eighth game. Here's a reliever who's eight and three in July 25th with a 2.64 ERA. And Dick is like 39 years old, right? The <laughs> Phillies had given up on him, and um, Orioles bring him back. And, um, you know, he has a rejuvenated part of his career. and I've heard Dick talk, um, you know, on, on TV a little bit. Um, just you know, such fantastic memories, and what and again, like you can only imagine what it's like for a guy at 39 years old, get a second chance at the club, uh, playing this great team, eight and three, 2.64 ERA. He just must be having the time of his life, you know. I mean, you're excited when you come up. If you're young, if you're Jim Palmer and you're young, and you're on that 66 club. But it's got to be even me more when you're Dick Hall and you're 39 years old and. You know the Phillies have kicked you to the curb, and the Orioles pick you up, and now you're eight and three, and it's July. I, I can't figure out why anybody ever gave up on Dick Hall during his career. Just looking at his statistics, he's an incredible whip. I mean, in, in '69, it's a .88 whip. In '70, it's a .93 whip, and and he pitched over 60 innings both of those years. So it's not like I mean, he's a more or less a multiple inning reliever. One of his one of the things he came in the World Series, pitched four innings uh, in one game. Uh, he, he, I, it's hard for me to understand why anybody gave up on him at this point. Certainly, the, the, the 1968 Phillies saying, you, know, <laughs> "You can't deal with what you did." <laughs> and how do you stay sharp? You know what I mean when uh, when when Palmer and Cuellar and McNally are going nine innings uh, every other game, every other start. You know, um, really great credit to. Uh, those guys in the bullpen, um, you know, who, who, you know, were amazing, and and we're not getting as the kind of regular work you would you would get today, probably, right? And going like you said, multiple innings all the time. Earl yeah. didn't Earl didn't pull you out. You know, he'd bring a guy in this seventh or eighth, and if you were rolling, you left in. 
Yeah, you, you, you kept going, that's for sure. And, and, and we heard the complete game totals. I mean, they're not getting in there every day. They're not right. getting on a regular basis. They don't know when they're going to pitch next or not with the, with the big three the Orioles have. So You come down late in the innings against, the, against that Minnesota Twins lineup and pitch four innings and have one run, and uh, that's, that's a big win. You know, I think, um, you know, maybe, I don't, you know, I don't know what this like a lot. I don't want to make too big of a deal, but... The Twins win three out of four in late July. You know, mm-hmm. maybe they feel a little bit better about themselves when they run into the Orioles later in the season. I don't know. Those games seem like to be kind of weighted, you know, when they would run into the Twins at that point. All right. All right, let's move on to August here and just uh, get ourselves to the rest. August is when the Orioles really take off. They go from six and a half up to 12 up at the end of the month. Uh, by the end of the month, they're 86 and 47. So they went 22 and eight in August, really dominated. Uh, didn't have a bunch of 10-run outbursts for the for the month. They, they had three, which is kind of low for a team that's as good as the 1970 Orioles. Um, but certainly got it done. One thing that strikes out is they, they did place the Kansas City Royals for, I believe, the last time in, on August 1st of the year. They won 23 in a row against the Royals in this era, including beating the Royals all 12 times in 1970. So, you know, they, they had a, as great as the Orioles were at beating anybody, they were really good at beating the bad teams in the American League at this time. Yeah, the Kansas City Royals um, stands out, right? That's over, over two seasons. Is it 23 games they win? Is it, I can't, I yeah, it's 23 in a row. So they lost the first game ever to the Royals in 1969. Then they won all the remainder to go 11-1 and in 69, and then 12-0 and in 70. Wow. Um, yeah, they, um, yeah, they kind of, I mean, you know, um, you know, I think one thing that's interesting is you are seeing at this point, like, um, they are getting uh, Bobby Gritch and, and Terry Crowley, and, and some of the guys are coming up and getting worked into the lineup a little bit. And, um, you know, I mean, Rettman's at, like, well over 300 all, all through. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's really – Brooks doesn't have a, a great offensive year, um, but Rettman certainly does. And um, – and and Frank's power numbers are a little down, although he always seemed to hit 300. Um, and and Redman has really come into his own, right? In 1970, he really has a whatever he has, like 330 at bats. He has like a monster year. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. yeah. Big big year. Uh, three, hit 318 and or 322 and 18 homers. I think it is. I'm I'm not looking at it right this second. Although you you know we are looking at the stats as we go through this, but uh, yeah, 320. I'm looking at 322, 18 home runs, 50 RBIs, and, and 338 at bats. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so he's he's you know he's really established himself. You see some of the younger ball players coming up, and they they rip off. I think a six game winning streak. They win like eleven out of twelve. The Orioles are really what they're almost forty games over five hundred. I mean, yeah, so yeah, thirty nine over it's, at the end of the month. I mean, how do you even get your head around that today, right? Like, how do you even yeah, how begin do you to top get, that? You do what they did in September and October. <laughs> well, that's I will say that when it came to September. I, w- I was, and I remember thinking, like, how did they possibly get to 108 wins? Uh-huh. Like, that's a, that's a crazy number, right? Like, how do you get to that many? Um, 108 and 54, right, where you're 54 games over. Well, mm-hmm. like you just said, um, they have, I don't know what the greatest Septembers are in baseball history, um, mm-hmm. but I know, I can't imagine any team ever finishing September better than the Orioles did, right? From, can I give it away? You go ahead. Okay. So from Sunday, September twentieth, 
So game five of the World Series, the Orioles lose only one game. That's in the World Series. That's right. That's, so they um, won 17 in a row, including the postseason. 11 to end the year, three to three in the playoffs, and then three in the World Series before Lee May beat him with a three-run homer in game four. That's it. I mean, um, right, they, 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 beat, they beat Cleveland 7 to nothing, September 20th. Jim Palmer pitched a shutout. Um, and they don't lose again until it's the World Series. They drop one game. I mean, they, they roll through the last, I think, 11 regular season games. And this is a time when you're running away. You think, okay, you're going to rest people. You're going to, uh, you're going to, you're going to, the foot's going to come off the gas. You're going to be game planning your rotation for the Twins looking ahead. Right? Anybody would do that. Instead, um, they, they rip off an 11-game winning streak, you know, which earlier in the month, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, they have an eight-game winning streak earlier, early, earlier in the month. And, um, yeah, they, they, they tear apart the Twins. Um, and they really, um, you know, I think it's, I can't remember, but it was, I think the Gamblers had Cincinnati as a slight favorite. Yeah, that's right. It was was ridiculous, obviously. (laughs) I I want to go back on the comment you just made, though, and how well the Orioles finished. In in 1969, the Orioles had an even better record for the year. I mean, they went 109 and and 53. And Weaver, down the stretch, rested a lot of the regulars um, and and didn't pitch him. He did did use his starting pitcher still, but they lost five straight games at the end of the year um, before they won the very last game of the season, 2-1. But the, the I think a lot of the mentality changed after losing the World Series to the Mets, after not looking that great at the beginning of the playoffs against the Twins with those couple of really close games. They said, we're not going to rest our regulars at the end of the season. This is counterproductive. Um, you know, Weaver said, we're going to play everybody. And you mentioned that with, you know, we're going to win right out of spring training kind of thing earlier. And they really put it into play in 1970, and, and uh, it proved to be the, the more optimal strategy. Yeah, there's there's something about um, you know I think baseball and um, you, the the game is played and pitched at such a speed that you can't replicate it in the batting cage or anything like that. You know, you need to keep that batting eye sharp. And listen, you know we've all played baseball and, play, and played basketball and football. Baseball is not the most physically draining game. Mm-hmm. Baseball is not right, but you need to stay sharp mentally, keep your batting eye, and. Um, you know, Weaver's not taking like Jim Potter. doesn't take the foot off the gas the whole way. I mean, I think, you know, the Orioles, you know, at maximum baseball has always been great pitching beats, great hitting, right? And, you know, the Mets had great pitching. I know Paul, I know Boog and the guys all said, you know, they, they knew of Kuzman and, and Seaver. They didn't know Gary Gentry, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that, you know, that 69 series is amazing. There's like nobody comes out of the bullpen for either side the whole series. It's amazing. Um, and they, the, the Reds don't have great, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, Orioles beat them. And, and whatever happened with the Pirates, you know, I'm not saying Steve Blass, these guys are Hall of Famers, but some guys, they, they, they pitched their lights out. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, I don't know. Riles. Right, Nelson. I, you know, I don't know if, you know, how much resting playing, but. He's certainly the mentality certainly was pedaled to the metal the whole way, and you see that down the stretch, man. They're they're racing to the finish line. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. it's, it's definitely a, a great team. Ryan, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the postseason if you want to here. Obviously, they cruise past the Twins in three games. Uh, and anything to say about that before we move on? Um, yeah, it's, it's easier. You know, I think it's, it's – um, you know, you have two of the great power hitters of the year of Killebrew and Boo going up against each other, I guess. Um, the old Metropolitan Stadium, that's what it was in Minnesota, is kind of funny to that see. Sounds the, right, yes. Funny to see, funny to see in, the, in the pictures, the pre-bubble thing they went through, I guess. Um, but no, I think, you know, the, you know, there's one team whose record – Orioles have the best record in the major leagues for the decade of the 1960s, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in the 1970s, it's actually the Cincinnati Reds edges them By out. By two games, that's right. And, that, of course, that's, that's you know, who they, they run into, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the World Series, um, you know, the Brooks Robinson World Series, right? I mean, that's, that's what it becomes. Yeah, it's, it was. Uh, it's a great series, and and I encourage people to to get those recordings off Masson when they come, and and make sure you, you you make a copy of them if you want to watch them again. Not everybody wants to do that, but I, I find it very entertaining to watch that World Series again, and 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 what happened. The first four games, I believe, are only available in black and white, and the last game is available in color. Uh, but uh, Game Five of that World Series, uh, uh, fun to watch on its own, um, and and I, the, the recurrent theme in that. That series, of course, was the Reds would get up early and they three times blew leads of three to nothing or more against the Orioles. Yeah, um, the, the Reds, I, I, I'm trying to remember their pitch. Their, their one starting pitcher was hurt, um, who won a lot of games for him that year. Um, he was on the All Star team, was hurt by the yes, postseason. Uh, Simpson, Wayne Simpson. Wayne Simpson, right. Um, I think he was a 20-game winner that year, the year before. He was he uh, was hurt like at the All-Star break, so he I think he ended up leading the league in ERA or was very close to it. He was like 14 and three. Yeah, he was hurt, but he was the starter for the National League in the All-Star game. Yeah, I mean I, I don't think there's any doubt if he's healthy, it would have been more competitive World Series. And the Orioles do do some bashing, right? They put up nine runs in Game Three, nine runs in Game Five, um, right? Um, six in in Game in uh, Game Two. two. Um, yep. Uh, you know, and you know, we we, remember, we know the highlights of Brooks Robinson, right? That uh, you know, robbing Johnny Bench and and diving, uh, robbing Lee May, and and going essentially, uh, you know, twenty feet out, <laughs> past third base foul line and throwing out Lee May. Um, the thing that's sometimes forgotten is like these were actually also like key moments in the game, right? There's like guys on bases in these situations, and I. W- Remember watching that play when Masson did it, and uh, the, the Lee May when Brooks goes to his backhand and turns and makes that throw kind of in one motion from past the coaches. Mm-hmm. And Palmer's pitching, of course, he has the best vantage point of anybody, mm-hmm. and he 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 you can just see his head turn and watch Brooks Robinson go so far foul ground, and then Palmer turns and watches the throw go all the way past the mound over to first, and nobody would have a greater appreciation. And he, he mentions this. I think when Palmer talks about in the air, Brooks is every year is another foot further in foul ground. But the length of that throw, and um, mm-hmm. I think it bounced. I think Boog pulls it out. Yep. But you can just imagine being Jim Palmer in the mound watching this like, how does this guy, how does this happen? Am I really watching this? Um, yeah, so that, that, that one thing from the series that, that stands out is um, 
you know, I think sometimes these guys, right, they'll talk, but they marveled at what each other did, mm -hmm. you know, out there. Yeah, I, I've, I, I've run into Brooks Robinson a number of times over the years, mostly at the, at the Johnny Unitas event. Yeah. And uh, it's, by the way, if you ever get tickets to that or get an opportunity, go. Hey, boy, you, you, uh, uh, sports stars of another era, they, they really crave the attention in a lot of ways, but they'll talk to you for as long as you like about the, that era. And Brooks in particular, uh, just a wonderful guy. You hear all about his, his, his Hall of Fame voting. He really was trying to get for a long time Ron Santo into the Hall of Fame. Uh, I, I know, and that was a big uh, quest of his. But uh, he'll... he'll Talk to you about whatever else, including like his experiences going up to check into the hotel. And, uh, you know, it's just very cool stories to be had. Uh, if you get a chance to go to that event, I highly recommend it. Yeah, that's that. I, I've, I've found the same thing. I mean, I very accessible and love, love the, all the memories and they, they really appreciate the fans. Um, I think, you know, what else that stands out is I, I remember guys talking about how shallow Paul Blair played uh -huh. and how. The pitchers would turn around and seem like he was just behind second base to them, you know, and um, yet nobody could hit a ball over his head. Um, and that um, also, I, I will admit, I didn't know this until last year that Brooks Robinson is left handed. Actually. With everything else he does except throw a baseball pretty much and, and hit. Yeah. Yeah. And that um, so he credits this with having his remarkable glove because it's on his left hand. And also a little bit not having the strongest throwing arm in the league. Mm -hmm. And what he knew, though, was how much time he had. And he got rid of the ball quickly, just like on that play. He, he get, he's getting the ball out of his glove quickly. And he knows how much time he has with everybody. And um, that, was, that was kind of remarkable to learn, some of those little um, you know, kind of details. I mean, I think we all knew Paul Blair played short. But when, when, when Palmer, somebody says, you know, uh, you know, you turn around, it seemed like he was standing right behind you, you know, on the mound. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, just, uh, you know, his nickname was Motormouth, right? Just the personality of the guy that he was, you know, a chatterbox and uh, that kind of thing. And, and, and Gritch apparently was just, you know, hard as nails. I mean, um, I think McNally said in uh, 71, like, you know, I don't want to be the guy that sends him back to Rochester. Like, God forbid, you better, <laughs> you better duck after you send him that message. You know, he was itching, dying to, to make his big league yeah, ball player. Incredible how long they made Bobby Gritch wait. It's, uh, it's not dissimilar to Adley Rutschman right now, but they, you know, the Orioles didn't have to keep him down if they didn't want to. Uh, but they had, you know, Belanger and, and Dave Johnson playing those positions, and they had to get him in somewhere. And it's great to see... Davey Johnson's numbers, great to see the photographs of him, the video, the clips of him on YouTube. Like, what a tremendous athlete. What a tremendous second base was. Nobody becomes a gold glover without being a major league. He's about being a tremendous athlete. Great hitter. Um, you know, really smart guy. Obviously, really going to college in the offseason and everything else. Because, you know, most of us would remember him, of course, more as the manager of the Orioles. Um, so it is, it's, it's great to see him as a younger guy, right? Because we sometimes we forget that, you know, Ali Kim was once a kid, you know, and yeah. coming up and, to and replace Jerry Adair. 
Yeah. When he, and, and when he was a kid, you know, and, and seeing him play baseball, realized that there's a there's a real intellectual there. It's not just a, he's not just a ball player. He's a lot more than that. Um, but anyway, I, I, I really appreciate that. Ron, I, I've got to draw this to a close sure, yeah. in over an hour and hey. 20. But this is fantastic. Oh, wow. I mean, we, I'm sure we could talk all day about baseball and other things. We'd love to have you on for another show. We probably need to focus the topic a little more than the 1970 Orioles. But it, a great project you did to, to, to put this on Twitter for a year when I, in, during a pandemic when we're all missing baseball. It was a lot of fun. And as a, as a journalist and as a writer, you know, baseball has a language all its own, its own idiom and phrases and everything. And it was, it's, it's great fun as a writer to go back and, and have 12 or 15 different words for home run or fly ball and <laughs> kind of have fun with all that as well. It was a really fun, creative project. And I'm, I'm happy it's, um, people are enjoying it this year as well. All right. So the 1971 Orioles you're doing right now, you're going through that. Not as wonderful an ending, but still a great season. Very memorable for me as a fan as well. Yeah, I mean, a tremendous season. The Orioles third 100 win season, um, right? They, they, we know what happens one run at the end of the season, but, you know, it doesn't take anything away from the, the Orioles. And um, I think, as I said, I, I think after this year, I'll take a break from the blow-by-blow account. Because I do mix in a lot of Orioles history with the Twitter feed, like mm-hmm. kind of what happened on this day kind of thing. And and the, the funny quotes from Earl and stuff like that. We do mix in some fun stuff. It's not just the day-by-day blows. There are some, some fun Orioles history. Probably do that for a while. And then I'm thinking maybe in uh, 2023, we come back for the 40th anniversary of uh, the 83 run. That would be a very cool one. And maybe there's even a, I guess it would be the 35th anniversary in 24 of the Why Not season if you wanted to do that. I know a lot of people would love to rehear that story. So, uh, uh, would, would love to hear it. But anyway, yeah, Ron, I, really, I, I remember that, yeah. Really appreciate you coming on the show and taking time with us. Uh, we'll, uh, we'd love to have you on. You're welcome uh, anytime again. Thanks, guys. Really a blast. Appreciate it. Take it easy, folks, and we'll see you next time on Film Study. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.